Hi, this is Eugenio Duarte. I hope you enjoy the interview you're about to listen to. If you do, or if you have ideas for books you'd like to hear about on the show, let me know. Go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on contact to send me a message. And now on with the interview. Hi, everybody. This is New Books in Psychology. I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte, in New York. And today, my guest is Dr. Tai Tashiro, author of the new book entitled Awkward, The Science of Why We're Socially Awkward and Why That's Awesome, published in 2017 by HarperCollins. I'd like to introduce my guest. Dr. Tashiro is author of the book The Science of Happily Ever After. His work has been featured in The New York Times, The Washington Post, Time.com, TheAtlantic.com, and on NPR and Sirius XM Stars Radio. He received his PhD in psychology from the University of Minnesota, has been an award-winning professor at the University of Maryland and University of Colorado, and has addressed TED at NYC, Harvard Business School, MIT's Media Lab, and the American Psychological Association, and he lives in New York City. Ty, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. So how did you come to write this book? Uh, well, uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Uh, kind of on accident, I guess. I had finished my first book, which was about the psychology of finding a good romantic partner. And uh, the, my agent was asking me about a second book. And I kind of decided I wanted to do something different just to mix it up. And I had noticed around that time, this is about three years ago, that I had a lot of friends who were in new cities and new jobs, and they were struggling to fit in, kind of struggling to make friends. And a lot of these folks were socially awkward, uh, but, but great people who were really interesting and, and great character. And I remember watching them in some of these new social situations and thinking how unfortunate it was that uh, people weren't really giving them a chance. Um, now, th- these friends were a little socially clumsy, you know, in these uh, social interactions. But I-, I thought if they could just skip the first five minutes of social interaction, I bet they'd be a lot better off, <laughs> which is kind of a strange thought to have. Um, and I thought... Somebody must have researched this, and somebody must have written a book about this. It turns out that there was a lot of research about this topic, a lot of research about social awkwardness, uh, but nobody had really written a book to take this great information uh, out to the broader public. So why do you think that the first five minutes of the interaction are so important? That was a a real mystery to me, because you're kind of thinking to yourself, well, the first five minutes... It should be kind of easy, right? Because there's these typical social expectations or social graces that are supposed to happen. Um, supposed to look the person in the eye, uh, maybe shake hands, you exchange names, and then ask them how they're doing, and they say they're fine. You ask them what they do. There's this whole standard set of questions. And what I found in a lot of the research on socially awkward people is that they have a hard time with these kinds of routine social expectations, uh, what we would call etiquette or social graces. Uh, For whatever reason, they just seem to have a hard time picking up on these kinds of um, cues that take place during the early minutes of an interaction. And they actually don't have a lot of interest (laughs) as well in things like small talk or uh, asking how the weather, uh, making remarks about the weather or asking somebody how their day is, they're usually interested in getting to uh, more substantial topics. But, um, you know, the way the world works is you need to engage in some of this small talk to warm up the conversation. And, and that's perfectly understandable. But to awkward people, this isn't necessarily something that they naturally understand. So then does research support the idea that as difficult as those first five minutes are for socially awkward people, that those first five minutes can determine uh, what's going to happen next can really determine the course of a relationship, whether two people are going to click and interact and take things to the next level or not. Oh, you know, absolutely. So 
there's some really clever social psychology studies. They call them zero acquaintance studies. And that means nobody knows each other, right, in these studies. And what they're interested in is how quickly do people form judgments about other folks? And they find that in the first 10 seconds, there's a tremendous amount of information gathered and actually a tremendous amount of social judgment that takes place. So even within those first 10 seconds, uh, things like your posture, uh, how close or far away you stand from somebody. Uh, so, for example, in the United States, it's about 18 inches of personal space that's considered appropriate. Uh, some awkward people will stand too close. They're space invaders, and that can make people uncomfortable. Uh, or they might stand too far away, and that feels strangely distant. Uh, awkward people tend to be prone to erratic eye contact, and that can be unsettling in a social interaction. So even within the first 10 seconds, if somebody's not quite hitting the social cues, that can lead to some negative social judgments that would affect the chances of future social interaction. And, and that makes me want to, that anecdote makes me want to take a moment to really define what makes an awkward person, because you're saying some awkward people uh, will stand too far away, but some people who can be identified as awkward will stand too close. I think the latter person can often be mistaken for someone who's, you know, too excited about social interactions. Uh, so it can be confusing. What, what really defines an awkward person, you think? Well, there's, you know, there's a lot of ways to, to define it. My favorite way to do it is to look at the root of the word awkward. It's actually pretty interesting. It comes from an old Norse word, afugur. And afugur means uh, facing the wrong direction or facing a different direction, depending on your optimism about the awkward condition, I guess. And I really like that definition because it explains in part why awkward people would miss social cues that everybody else can see clearly. But it also says that they might be looking at the world in a unique or unusual way, and that could have potential value. Now, from a more psychological perspective, there's the question of why are they facing a different direction in the first place? And what they find in cognitive science and neuroscience studies is that awkward people um, tend to have a, what, a, like a spotlighted focus. So instead of seeing social situations broadly, um, they tend to have this really concentrated, narrow focus, and it tends to fall a little left of center stage, if you want to think uh, of a metaphor. They tend not to focus on the same things everyone else is focusing on. They tend to be interested in things that are peripheral to the core social situation. So so they, they're more likely to see the trees and the forest. They're, they're the kinds of people who will... Um, you know, get lost in the weeds, as they say. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you think about the awkward people that you know, um, they just get more excited <laughs> about some unusual things than the average person gets. And, uh, you know, I, I always say I like Star Wars, but, you know, I don't dress up as Chewbacca for the opening uh, of Star Wars when a new movie comes out. Um, you know, they might be particularly passionate about computers or Game of Thrones or whatever else. These are things that other people like, but their degree of enthusiasm is significantly different. And, well, and it seems like, am I right in understanding you to say that it's, it's, it's yes, that they have a, an, an intense, maybe a more highly intense interest in something than the average person, but that also that they're failing to see something about the bigger picture? Yeah, exactly. You know, you think... Um, Think about the absent-minded professor or folks who get called too smart for their own good. Um, these kinds of stereotypes that we have in society, it, it turns out that a lot of the psychological data actually supports <laughs> the accuracy of some of these stereotypes. And yeah, they kind of get lost in their head or they get, uh, I always like to say they get distracted by the sparkly objects in the room. <laughs> they, they just seem to have their attention captured by unusual things. And when that happens, then they don't pick up on the social cues that other people are picking up on. And this is probably the thing that 
non-awkward if we can if we can categorize people on a binary like that um which i'm which maybe we can't but for the purposes of discussion that's the kind of thing that non-awkward people would probably find frustrating and I, I imagine would say to them well then stop focusing so much on that one specific thing and snap out of it try to see the bigger picture just does, does science explain to us why that kind of shift is so difficult for awkward people, why they can't help but focus so intensely on that one thing. You know, there's a, a lot of specific science that I find really interesting that pertains to that question. I'll give you one example that I think is pretty clean that comes from um, eye contact studies. And, you know, the average person can tell you that awkward people are more prone to making erratic eye contact. And that can often be interpreted by non-awkward people as a sign of disrespect, maybe, or a sign that the awkward person is not interested in what's being said or might have low self-esteem. Um, it's pretty interesting on this topic. So these eye tracking studies where they'll track where your eyes look within a millimeter. And when they ask people to look at a face and to try to decode the emotional expression on that face. What they find is that most people have time and the pretty hard to do because the eye region is the most information-rich part of the face when it comes to decoding emotion. Now, awkward people, by contrast, will reflexively look to the chin or the edge of the ears. And those are much less information-rich places. And uh, you know, the question is, so why would they reflexively look to the chin or the ear? And the answer lies in some of the uh, uh, neuroscience studies of how awkward people process faces. And when awkward people look someone in the eye, it's a really intense emotional experience. Uh, it's kind of like looking into the sun for too long for the awkward person. So what they learn at a very young age is to avert um, their gaze from the eyes because that dampens the emotional intensity of the situation. So when an awkward person's not looking someone in the eye, they're, they're actually trying, they're doing that because they're trying to listen to what's going on and not be overwhelmed uh, by the emotional intensity of looking into the eyes for too long. So how often do you find that non-awkward people are able to understand that or, or not? How, how do non-awkward people interpret that kind of behavior? Uh, well, you know, understandably, they interpret it uh, in a very different way, right? They don't, they don't see that as the, emotion, the awkward person trying to dampen the emotional intensity of the situation. Um, they'll see it as the awkward person being disengaged or, or aloof a lot of times. And that's totally under, to, you know, totally understandable. Um, but I thought that was one of the reasons why it was important to get some of this information out there uh, and to say that, hey, you know, a lot of times people have good intent and they're trying their best, but that might manifest with social cues that look a little bit different. Do you think awkward people are consciously aware that the social interactions are, that they find them overwhelming and that that's what they're trying to do in their erratic eye contact? Uh, yeah, so like in that specific situation with the eye contact, um, I, I don't think most awkward people understand that's what's at play, right? They don't understand they're averting their gaze. Uh, because uh, their brain's overwhelmed by, by looking this person in the eye. Um, they find that a lot of these eye contact um, tendencies emerge pretty early in childhood, so before the age of five. So they're pretty used to it, right, by the time they, they even reach grade school. Well, you know, I, I imagine that a lot of our listeners um, might have kids or might have people in their lives that they're concerned about, uh, who they also deem as awkward, but they might feel not quite satisfied with that because awkward isn't really a diagnosis. And one of the things I like about your book is that you address the difference between awkwardness and say something like autism or being on the autism spectrum. Can you explain the difference? Yeah, I, I thought that was uh, one of the more interesting topics that I dove into. Um, because I think in the general public, it's it's generally not well known, partly because psycho as psychologists, uh, people like me don't always do a good job of explaining how symptoms work. And so uh, most psychological disorders, you know, that are made of, of different symptoms 
those symptoms are normally distributed in the general population. And so if you take something like autism, uh, the symptoms of autism are social skill deficits, communication problems, and this tendency to become obsessively focused on something. Now, the average person in the population has like three or four autistic kinds of tendencies. So they might have, you know, trouble with eye contact or they might have trouble articulating themselves clearly, but they're nowhere near, let's say, the 10 or 11 symptoms they would need to be diagnosed as autistic. Um, but since it's on a it's on a bell curve, it's normally distributed. That means that there's people at the 85th percentile of symptoms or the 90th percentile of symptoms. And I thought to myself, well, if the 99th percentile and above is where someone gets uh, diagnosed as autistic, then what do you call the person at the 98th percentile or the 95th percentile? And I thought, you know, that's that's pretty much someone who's awkward. And if you think about the awkward people, you know, yeah, they have social skill deficits and sometimes have trouble communicating. And they have that quality of getting obsessed about something that they really, really love. I think sometimes people who self-identify as awkward and know that they have this difficulty will will sometimes go through a phase of wondering if they're autistic. And and as you just described, will rule that out because because like you said, they don't have all those symptoms. But then I, I, I've experienced that sometimes not having some kind of diagnosis leaves them frustrated because you're looking for a way to understand what the heck is going on with them. So how do you, how do you talk to a person? How do you explain to such a person why it is that they have so much trouble with social interactions and also how you get them thinking about what they can do to to learn how to be more socially adept. Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of take a more of a personality approach to it. So, you know, I'll say, for example, there's um, people they probably know who uh, are more sad than the average person. Right. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that person has major depressive disorder um, or they might know someone who they would describe as high strung, but, you know, that person doesn't qualify for a generalized anxiety disorder. And so, you know, for a lot of people, I think for a lot of um, different qualities and different personality traits, it's tough to reconcile in our society that's so dichotomous. So, you you know, you have a diagnosis or you don't. It's hard to think about, well, what happens when I kind of struggle, right, with something? And I say that that's, that's okay and that we can actually borrow some things from, let's say, for example, treatment protocols for autism that could be very, very useful for people who are just struggling with social skills in a subclinical kind of way. So, you know, what awkward people start to do a lot of times when they end up being successful with their social life is they use their observational capacities to really study and break down how people who are good at social interactions handle routine situa situations. So like when I was a kid and I realized that, I started observing, oh, how do people greet one another? Uh, how do they uh, position themselves as far as their body language? You know, how do they handle uh, difficult conversations? And I think if the awkward person does that, they start to see that there is, in fact, a pattern to social interaction and that social interactions are kind of groundhog day like in the in the sense that we repeat so many of the social scripts, e even on a daily basis. And so if you can master these things, you know, piece by piece and then string those together into patterns, then you can become what I call socially fluent and be able to engage in social interactions in a way that you understand uh, other people's social intent with ease, but you're also able then to engage in a way that doesn't feel so effortful. Yeah, I was wondering about that. You know, how how does a socially awkward person, I could totally see how that would work for someone whose mind is just built to study things systematically and scientifically. But for a person like that, how do you go from sort of implementing things in a 
kind of forced studied way to a point where it flows more naturally and and frankly where it doesn't where you don't look like an awkward person trying to not be awkward right right well you know the reality is i think for a while you look like an awkward person trying not to be awkward <laughs> you know which isn't great uh, i wish the answer was was different than that but you know the the alternative is not to not to change the behavior at all which isn't a great isn't a great alternative so you know i i think that it's just a tough growing process like anything else and i always think of it as being like a second language and when you study a second language you start out by studying vocabulary and in the social realm that's like social cues individual social cues and then as you get more advanced, you start to learn the grammatical rules about how to organize that vocabulary. And in social life, that would be things like social expectations or social scripts. And, you know, how it goes with the second language. Eventually, you're able to go from being so effortful and being a little bit clumsy, right, in how you interact with others to getting to the point where there's certain things that you feel really we feel really at ease. And um, all of a sudden going to a restaurant um, or, you know, playing, let's say playing a sport with people, you keep doing that and those situations become really easy for you. Uh, and then there's, you'll encounter new ones though, right? Where you don't quite know what the social script is or um, you don't know the social expectations and then the awkwardness returns <laughs> in those moments. But um, you know, but as people learn how to handle different social situations, I think that knowledge generalizes to others. You know, one of, one of the things that I really appreciated about your book and that I think others will like about it is that you really, um, you know, put us right in the mind and behind the eyes of the person who's awkward and helping us understand viscerally and experientially what it's like for such a person to like even order at a restaurant, which I have to confess, uh, you know, I, I hadn't really, I don't think I'd really grasped uh, how for such a person that can be so challenging when maybe for me, uh, it seems like a thing that you don't even think about. And, and what I also liked is that you offer some strategies from your own experience. There was, there was one that I thought was particularly cool that I thought maybe you could tell us about is the, I don't know if you exactly called it this, but the first three strategy, the thing that your parents did with you about the first three, can you explain this to our audience? Cause I just think it's so useful. Uh, sure. I'd be happy to. It's actually funny. Cause I'm at my mom's house back in Colorado <laughs> uh, for while we're doing this interview. And uh, so it's, it's extra fresh <laughs> in my mind, but um, so let's say uh, we're going to go to, Wendy's to get hamburgers. Um, when we got to the parking lot, and this went on for much longer in life <laughs> than it would go on for the average kid. So let's say I'm 12 years old and uh, we get to the Wendy's and my parents would turn around to the back seat and they'd say, it's time to mentally prepare. And I, I knew exactly <laughs> what this meant. And it was essentially a Socratic dialogue that would walk me through the social expectations I would encounter once I got inside. And so they'd ask questions in chunks of three. So they might say something like, so where, you know, where are we and why are we here? <laughs> and so I'd say, well, we're, we're at Wendy's because we want to eat. Okay. Now, when you walk inside the door, what's the first thing you need to look for? And, you know, we might have had this conversation many times previously. And I, it would take me a second to be like, oh, yeah, I got to look and see if there's a line. Um, because sometimes I would cut the line, not not because I was trying to cheat the system or, or you know, be first. And this sounds really weird to non-awkward people, but I just wouldn't see it. It just wouldn't register to me that uh, that I needed to get to the back of the line, that there was a line. I would just see the register and kind of impulsively jump to it. But that's so good that you're saying that. I mean, because I think so many of us would would not understand that and think you are cutting the line. Oh, sure. Yeah. And if someone were to uh, interpret that as me being selfish or trying to cheat, that's totally, totally understandable. Right. Um, but for the awkward person, you know, a lot of times the intent is not bad. It's just that they, 
have been a little bit clueless in a situation or a little bit clumsy. And so, you know, here I've got now the objective of why we're here. I've got the first thing to look for once I enter the, the building. And then they might say something like, so now what do you need to do now that you're in line? And, and I might say something like, well, I should probably figure out what I want to order and get my money ready. Um, now, these would be the kinds of things that the average adolescent would just naturally understand. Uh, but these things were entirely not intuitive <laughs> for me. And so this kind of step-by-step -step behavioral approach uh, to thinking about social interaction was exactly what I needed. And I needed to memorize those scripts and get practice with those scripts so that you know, I, I wouldn't be put in situations where I gave people the wrong impression. You know, what I like about it, and tell me if I'm understanding the rationale behind it correctly, is that your parents weren't trying to, like, get you to study and remember all the different things that you were going to have to do in any sort of, you know, social situation. They were, they limited it to three, like the if, and, and if I understand it right, the idea was, well, if you can get past the first three major things that you got to do socially, then you're more likely to be able to figure out the rest as you go or, or figure out enough of the rest as you go if you've, if you've succeeded with the first three. Is that how it works? Exactly. Exactly. You know, I, I still think to this day, uh, even when I write things, for example, I think in chunks of three. You know, and um, that was a number that I could manage and didn't overwhelm me. Um, but, you know, I, I think oftentimes for awkward people uh, and even non-awkward people, uh, doing things in chunks of three just kind of makes sense. It gets gets past that number and then you can start to feel overwhelmed, um, especially when it's not something that you're um, naturally good at. So, yeah, they would do the first three and then. Uh, like in that specific example, they might then, you know, be in line with me and help me with the rest of the, the interaction. Um, but eventually it would get to the point where those first three would be like second nature, wouldn't even have to think about it. And then we could move on to the to the second three, which might be things like, how do you greet the cashier? Uh, how do you project your voice to make sure that she can hear you correctly? Uh, and <laughs> very important for me was... Make sure you look behind you before you turn around with your tray so you, you don't bump into the person behind you. Oh, I see. And, and I mean, I imagine I see the I see the logic and I see how it would work. But I I mean, am, am I right to assume that this takes a lot of practice? This is not going to happen overnight and, and that the progress might not always be totally linear um, and that and the parents or friends who are doing this sort of thing need to be patient? Yeah. Yeah. So that's the number one thing I'd recommend for parents or teachers or therapists, you know, whoever it might be who's working and caring for an awkward person. Uh, if you can just be maybe double or triple your patience, <laughs> that would be really helpful. And then, you know, just also try to understand the intent. So it's not to say that all awkward people at all times have good intent, right? Um, we're, we're all prone to uh, things that are less than desirable, intense at times. But, you know, with the awkward person, if you kind of step back, a lot of times you see they're trying to do the right thing. They're just having trouble doing it. So I think that patience and then looking for intent are, are two really great things that people can do for awkward people. The other thing that you mentioned in the book, another kind of, I think, strategy that capitalizes on awkward folks systematic ways of experiencing the world is the if then i guess teaching strategy could you could you talk about this this strategy uh, sure yeah you know I should, I should probably mention i think i forgot to mention this earlier that you know awkward people's systematic minds um and their uh, pr propensity for figuring out patterns that's actually seen in a lot of the occupations they choose. So they're disproportionately represented in things like mathematics and uh, science, uh, computers, those kinds of things. And if you think the coding, exactly. And 
I mean, that's uh, exactly why they're good at things like if-then <laughs> statements, um, because it's a very logical um, kind of way to make sense of the world. So, well, you know, non-awkward people might walk into a room and they just might think, oh, the vibe in here is positive. <laughs> or they might think the vibe in here feels really uncomfortable. Um, awkward people don't think that way. They don't think in abstractions. They don't think um, in this kind of holistic global way uh, in social situations. And so if you can explain to the awkward person in more logical terms what's going on, they're much more receptive to the information. So if you say to the awkward person, <laughs> if you don't say goodbye to people when you leave a party, then they might think that you didn't have a good time. And so I think that it's important to follow up the instructions about a certain social skill with the rationale for why that's the case. And that becomes a motive then for for remembering that and, and then, you know, performing the socially appropriate behavior. Exactly. Exactly. So it connects the behavior to like an abstract intent. Right. So if you intend to be courteous or if you intend to um, be responsive, then there's a certain set of behaviors that correspond to those things. And while that's once again obvious to a lot of people, uh, for awkward folks, it, it's just not something that they connect naturally. You know, one of the things that I find as a psychoanalyst and therapist myself in, in working with people who identify as awkward is that you know the free association i guess instruction or method that a lot of us use or or, or the expectation that we have that our patients should come in and talk about whatever they want or whatever's on their mind can be very difficult for awkward people they often say well i don't really have anything to say i don't really know what i want to say sometimes they seem so fixated on what they're supposed to say that I think that gets in the way of their access to what they want to say. Is this a phenomenon that you recognize and maybe understand? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, as someone who's in psychology, I've certainly done that before where I'll be in my psychologist mindset and think in psychologist terms. And so I might ask about abstract things. I might say, so how was your, how was your mood this week, <laughs> for example? Um, or did you feel socially connected this week? Those are, those are actually really abstract ways to talk about the world. And what I find is nice with awkward people is to get just more concrete about it. So, um, you know, I might say, so you were thinking about going to a party last Friday. Uh, Let's let's start on Friday morning. And can you tell me what were you thinking about on Friday morning? And so I think getting really specific about time and place, then that can really root the awkward person in. OK, yeah, these were specific things that happened in a certain sequence. And then I think we can infer broader psychological things from those specific behaviors. I, I want to shift to another part of your book that I thought was fascinating. And it's the part where you address how modern social life is kind of making all of us a little bit awkward or, or making social interactions feel a little more awkward than they used to for all of us. W what do you mean by that? Can you explain? Yeah. Uh, well, it started out as a hunch, actually. <laughs> when, I, when I was telling people I was writing a book about social awkwardness, I was really surprised at how many non-awkward people uh, told me, I feel so awkward. <laughs> I, th I think to myself, I, I don't understand that. Like, you seem entirely socially adept to me. Um, and so that, I think that's where the hunch started. But then as I got into uh, some of the sociological data about social life, um, you know, I indeed found that there's these trends in social life that are kind of disturbing. So uh, let's let's take a look at social connect connectedness, for example, and um, like friendships and, and family connections. The research there is really interesting because 
you know, we need about three or four strong, satisfying social connections to feel like we belong to society and that we and that we fit in. That's kind of the bare minimum. Uh, well, it turns out the average person in the United States has about seven friends who they consider close and about seven family members that they're in regular contact with. So people have about 14 folks, right, in their close orbit. And so it sounds like, wow, we should be we should be doing fine as a society when it comes to social connectedness. But that quantity of people is different than the quality of those interactions. And so what researchers have found is that the quality of our social ties has been eroding over the past, oh, probably two to three decades. And so the there's this one question that really breaks my heart, which is, if you had a serious problem or concern, would there be somebody that you could talk to about it? And what they found is that from 1991 to 2015, the number of people who said that they didn't have somebody to talk to tripled in that time span. And so people are feeling like they're, they don't have a lot of folks that they can rely on um, or they don't have a lot of feel, people that they trust enough or feel comfortable enough with to have the kind of intimacy and social bonds that we need to feel like we're, we're connected and, and fluid in our social lives. Mm -hmm. And in the book, you seem to trace some of that to the historical shifts that we've seen in family life. Can you talk about that? Yeah, well, you know, family life has, has changed quite a bit, too. I think everyone's aware of the, the high divorce rate. And, um, you know, that's just a fact of life and that happens. But um, that creates family situations that in the course of human history are more complex, right, than they used to be. And that can mean that you have families that are, are blended with uh, folks who come from a different set of expectations. Anytime there's people that come with a different set of expectations, that's a moment that's ripe for awkwardness, right? Um, because uh, people don't know each other's plays, essentially, in social situations. Um, there's also a phenomenon like um, adult kids living with their parents for much longer than they used to. Um, so there's a good chunk of 20-somethings living at home, which is just out of financial necessity. Uh, but that creates some uh, pretty great situations for awkward moments <laughs> uh, at, at home. So in family life, too, we have these new social structures, and, and that's okay. But there are some growing pains we're experiencing as we adjust to then some of the different social expectations that are in place. Is the idea that some of these some of these shifts that we're seeing, such as uh, young people living at home longer, or I think you also mentioned in the book the fact that we less often are surrounded by our extended families, is the idea that then this makes it harder for kids to learn important social skills that they need once they go out into the world and need to interact with strangers and with new people. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if um I used to go back to the uh, boomer era when, when they were kids, it was much more likely that your relatives lived close by. And that was actually then a nice experiment in slightly different social uh, expectations, right? And um, ways of, of doing things. And so people could adapt different ways of interacting. Uh, I, I don't like to get too overblown about the social media and phones and all of that. But if it's a situation where uh, kids have less exposure to uh, diverse kinds of social situations and they're spending too much time um, on their electronics or with their phones, then that's not a great recipe for um, learning how to adapt to new social situations. Well, I, w I wonder, I agree with you, and I also wonder if you would consider that the technology is creating new kinds of social interactions you know sometimes my young patients are talking to me about quote-unquote conversations or fights that they had with someone you later find out that the whole thing took place over text or over private message on instagram right you know um or a comment on a, com on a comment thread so are the standards by which we even judge what constitutes a social interaction evolving 
Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, and even between platforms, right? So if you leave a period, for example, at the end of your text, um, that sounds abrasive. I, I, you know, to a lot of people, or it sounds like you're mad. If you now, I just if you leave this last year. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I went a little late myself, but uh, <laughs> people are like, oh, are you mad at me? I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> Apparently, appropriate punctuation is <laughs> not okay in that environment. Now, if you were to not leave periods in an email, then people might think you're being sloppy. Um, and even the way people interact on Twitter versus Tumblr versus Facebook or Instagram, th there's different cultural expectations actually between the different platforms. So I, I don't think that's, you know, that's neither good nor bad. I, I think it creates more things you need to know, <laughs> which can be onerous sometimes. But for awkward kids, uh, I, I think it's not necessarily always a bad thing because the online communities have provided them a way to connect with people uh, who are like-minded and who maybe share some of their unusual passions or interests so that they feel uh, less alone in the world. Uh, so I think it's a good combination between using the social platforms to actually be social. Um, and then in real life, as the cool kids would say, um, interactions so that you get that kind of social gratification as well. Yeah, and, and given their systematic way of thinking, as you talk about, I could see how technology in the best scenario gives them the chance to sort of systematically think through how to write a text or how to respond to something online. Uh, you know, maybe they've learned certain emojis mean certain things and they can kind of think their way through it without feeling so on the spot, so live and, and exposed in front of another human being. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, like you just take emoji, for example. Um, there's no brain getting overwhelmed by looking somebody in the eyes <laughs> to decode the emotion. Um, instead, you get the symbol, almost like a Morse code, right? And so, yeah, in, in some ways, it can be it can be ideal. And I'll, I'll tell parents, for example, hey, if your if your kid's finding connection in online communities that are healthy for them then that's, that's a wonderful thing. And then the task is eventually to say, all right, now how can we transition uh, some of those skills into the real life interactions? And, and, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of readers will like about your book is that you address a very, I think whatever, it's a very tricky topic for awkward people, which is dating and sex. And I like the title of the chapter, which is dating and sex are so awkward as though it is for everybody. And when I was reading the chapter, I, I sort of wanted to ask you, I mean, aren't dating and sex in a way supposed to be awkward? Um, and, if, and if so, are there moments when awkwardness is totally normal and not a thing to run away from or even try to uh, change and make non-awkward, but maybe something to, to sort of tolerate and, um, and be with? you know, and find one's way through more organically. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think some mindfulness uh, in awkward situations can be a, a wonderful thing. Uh, it, it, certainly in dating, because it's kind of by default awkward a lot of times, but, uh, but also in other situations as well. Uh, you know, because I, I think sometimes we get uncomfortable with things and then we can misinterpret that as, oh, this is is a bad thing to be doing or you know nothing's going well here when in fact it's like no this is just something that's going to be uncomfortable and if you tolerate it then um there could be some good things at the at the other end of this so yeah it's the sex and dating chapter was the easiest one to write <laughs> i have to say just because I, I found there was um it, it, the whole uh, experience of, of dating and sex is is awkward for a lot of people and I think especially now with some of the new platforms that people interact on with online dating, uh, everyone's trying to figure out, yeah, how, how exactly, what exactly are the expectations here and how do I navigate those? Right. And I mean, I'm going to sound now like, like a total psychoanalyst for a moment, but the, the, the terror and the angst of encountering one, the separateness the gap, you know, between oneself and another human being that one 
knows nothing about and has no connection to, but a real interest in, in and, and attraction to, that's that's universal and maybe in a way kind of kind of beautiful if you can if you can honor it and 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 enjoy it and 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 use it as energy to to start making connections uh, absolutely you know i mean that's that's part of the fun right with uh dating is the not knowing i mean we would hate romantic comedies that just made perfect logical sense uh, that would be pretty boring and so yeah but I, I think the stakes are so high in dating um in places like the united states we put so much weight on our romantic relationships um and they're so romanticized right in a lot of ways that it increases the stakes and i think what that does then is it amplifies the awkwardness when there's deviations from what is socially expected and it's not easy because in dating, uh, people make their intent and expectations opaque, almost by, almost strategically. Uh, and so you, if someone's being flirtatious, for example, a lot of times what happens is they'll engage in some flirtatious behavior, but that's followed by uh, a retreat. And there can be this push-pull where it makes it hard for somebody to decipher what exactly is what exactly is going on? Right. I, I, can you teach flirtation to an awkward person? Can a per, an awkward person learn that? I think so. Uh, well, they can. They can not be bad at it. I think. I don't know if you can make someone great, but um, yeah, there, there's certainly things you can say. Hey, uh, don't do these things, right? And then um, these are things that reliably seem to be okay. And I think for, in my just anecdotal experience with um, awkward friends or um, awkward people in general who, who are dating, the, the biggest thing I'll talk about is let's, let's work on controlling the enthusiasm. <laughs> so if you, if you like somebody, that's great. And um, uh, we can be really happy for you, but you just got to know that the average person is going to expect that that enthusiasm is doesn't come out all at once. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah. But I think I think once you know, once the awkward person gets that mindset, uh, yeah, they can have a lot of success. And I think sometimes their unusual perspective on the world and their unusual way of doing things actually sets them up to be strangely romantic <laughs> in some ways. I've been surprised at how many spouses or boyfriends or girlfriends of awkward people have contacted me and said, hey, number one, you, you totally described my partner. So, so thank you. Um, but they'll re also relay these really beautiful stories about uh, how their awkward partner it, it did something that was uh, really sweet or really nice, um, but it was done in their a mysteriously awkward kind of way. I could see how that would work given an awkward person's hyper attention to detail and, and to, and to certain kind of like tidbits of information that they might be able to remember better than non-awkward people. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, I was on a, a radio show and they had callers on, on the show and this woman called in and she was not awkward, but um, she said she had married a really awkward guy who she had loved a lot now for 25 years. And she, she said something that really just blew my mind. She said, um, although she usually takes the lead in most social situations for them as a couple, um, she said whenever she has a social interaction that she has mishandled and doesn't seem to understand why, the first person she always asks and talks to about that situation is her awkward husband. <laughs> and she said, because if he knows the the person, um, he's probably picked up on, um, you know, some of these things that were brewing long before the awkward or uncomfortable situation ever took place. Uh, just because he sees the world in a bottom up kind of way rather than a top down kind of way. Titus, it's been such an interesting conversation. And I think the book is not only fascinating, but really kind and uplifting and i think a lot of people should read it <laughs> for themselves or oh thank you so much i really, know, really appreciate for themselves that. or or for their loved ones and friends um we're almost out of time but i don't want to end without asking you what you're working on next 
Yeah, well, um, like I think I think the you got the paperback version of Awkward coming out in uh, early April, so I think we'll uh, you know we'll, we'll continue working on that and focusing on that. But then um, I I am working on the just start working on the third book a bit and tinkering around with that. Uh, I, I don't have enough clarity to uh, probably talk about in a way that would be interesting <laughs> at this point, but I'm looking forward to that. And uh, it is nice to have the time in between the books and so I get to talk to people about it and, and get their reactions and, and, and do that before you move on to the next thing. Do you enjoy going out and talking about the book? This has been particularly enjoyable uh, for me. I've just received so many uh, kind, uh, thoughtful messages uh, from folks who are awkward or, um, you know, who are married to someone who's awkward or, or a teacher or whatever. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just great to hear people talk about, uh, you know, how, how much they appreciate this person's quirks <laughs> or their uh, unique way of seeing the world. Uh, I think hearing that that part of it has been really gratifying. Well, again, Ty, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I wish you the best of luck with the paperback version that's coming out and with your future stops on your book tour. So thank you. And please come back when the next book comes out. I'd love to. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you. Take care. This is Eugenio Duarte, your host for New Books in Psychology in New York. I hope that you enjoyed the interview that you just listened to. And I also hope that you'll keep letting me know who you would like to hear on the show next or what books in psychology you're reading. To let me know, go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com and click on contact. Until next time, have a great week.